Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 61, The Crusade of Varna. So no new Patreon supporters this time, but I wanted to take this moment to encourage you all to check out a YouTube channel. It's called Kings and Generals. Now, they've created some new episodes over the last few months covering the Battle of Kosovo, the Battle of Nicopolis, the Crusade of Varna. Uh, They just released one on uh, one of the, I forget which year, the early 8th centuries, um, Arab kind of attacks on Constantinople. Lots of really, really interesting kind of YouTube videos covering these historical battles. Uh, I recently met one of their researchers, Georgi, who's based right here in Sofia. Really nice guy. And yeah, they create good content and they cover a lot of the same events and battles that we cover here, but in less detail, but also with really nice visuals. So, you know, if it's Nicopolis, the Crusade of Varna, Battle of Kosovo, if you'd like to kind of see some nice maps and uh, some nice kind of battle formations and things and to get a better visual idea of what those battles and events looked like, check them out. All right, now last time, we ended with the death of Sigismund of Hungary, as well as his son-in-law and successor. As a result, the king of Poland, Vladislav, became king of Hungary as well. This consolidated power in Eastern Europe. But Wallachia, under Vlad Dracul, finally gave in and became an Ottoman vassal, while Serbia, under George Brankovic, had more or less ceased to exist as the Ottomans conquered it and Brankovic fled to Hungary to live there as a Hungarian lord. The Ottomans also captured Thessalonica from the Venetians, with the result being that the Byzantine Empire is now really even reduced further. It's the city of Constantinople, a bit of the area around it, and some islands, a little bit of Greece, but very, very little left. Knowing how desperate the situation was, the Emperor John VIII went to Rome to attempt a deal to unite the Eastern and Western churches and finally get the West to come and aid the dwindling empire, but to no avail. The people of Constantinople themselves said quite clearly they prefer conquest by the Ottomans to becoming Catholic. So that's the situation in 1440. The Ottomans are resurgent as if their civil war had never happened. Yet, King Vasislav brings fresh hope that the combined might of Poland and Hungary might yet push back the Ottomans. That year begins with the Ottomans failing to take Belgrade after a siege. So, while they may have annexed Serbia, the fortifications of Belgrade still are there to stop their advance. Now, at this moment, pressure was taken off Hungary when the Karaman Principality attacked Ottoman territory in Anatolia forcing Murad II to rush there to fight them. The Hungarians took the Sultan's absence as an opportunity to counterattack, and so they raided deep into the Balkans in 1441. That year, the Hungarians won a major battle against the local Ottoman commander, but it wasn't enough to reverse the situation in the region. This is partly evidenced by the fact that the very next year, another Ottoman commander invaded Transylvania with 17,000 soldiers. The Hungarian forces lost their first battle against this new invading force. But within months, 
they utterly destroyed the Ottoman army. Murad got word of these losses and instructed the Ottoman commander of all European forces to take an army of 70,000 to Transylvania to teach the Hungarians a real lesson. His army was also destroyed by a far smaller force in the Carpathian Mountains. Still, these victories were only against local commanders, or even the whole commander of the Balkans of Europe, but not against the Sultan with his full army, with the Janissaries. They hardly affected the overall military capacity of the Ottoman Empire. Even these tens of thousands of losses, the Ottomans could absorb them. Still, they did function as major propaganda victories for Hungary and the victorious commander of many of these battles, a man named John Hunyadi, or Janos Hunyadi in the more local Hungarian. Now, following these victories in Transylvania and Wallachia, the Hungarians installed a man named Bezarab II on the Wallachian throne because Vlad Dracul had been summoned to Edirne to demonstrate his loyalty to the Ottomans and was imprisoned there presumably for, I guess, kind of collaborating with the Hungarians, or at least on suspicion of doing so. But within a year, Vlad Dracul returned and retook his throne after pledging loyalty to the Ottomans. That loyalty was 500 boys a year for the Janissaries, and giving his two sons, including the later certain Vlad the Impaler Dracula, as hostages. Now, in any case, much bigger events were afoot elsewhere. The Pope was attempting to unite the Holy Roman Empire, Poland, Hungary, and the remaining Serbian forces, and even the last Bulgarian royal, Frusian, for a crusade against the Ottomans. The Pope believed that they were weak and that this was the perfect moment to attack. Now, negotiations have been ongoing for two years, but by the, the beginning of 1443, European forces were pretty much ready. War was declared from Buda on Palm Sunday and around 40,000 mostly Hungarian soldiers began the march south. The first major Ottoman stronghold they faced was Niche. The city was initially captured without much trouble, as it had only a small garrison, and the Ottomans had yet to amass an army to face this crusading army. So one by one, three Ottoman armies approached the crusaders, and one by one they were defeated. Then, the remnants of the three forces gathered together to face the Crusaders yet again, only to be defeated a fourth time. One member of the Ottoman forces was the Albanian lord Skanderbeg, whose father had fought in an uprising against the Ottomans while he was serving them in Anatolia. Now, he saw his chance at this moment, and he actually fled the Ottomans with 300 loyal Albanian soldiers back to their homeland to lead a rebellion. And this is going to be very important, so remember, this is the moment when Skanderbeg gets away. Still, Sultan Murad and his main army had yet to meet the Crusaders. You know, these initial armies, they'd all come and all lost, but Murad was coming. Now, he was based in Sofia, and by the time the remaining Ottoman forces reached him, they had burned everything between Niche and Sofia in an attempt to slow down the Crusaders and obviously harm their supplies. They advised the Sultan to burn Sofia to the ground, though I can't find any indication as to whether or not he did this. But by the time it was December, and no doubt supplies must have been difficult for the Crusaders. I mean, obviously I'm very familiar with this region in December. It gets very cold. You can have a lot of snow. Uh, it's not a very nice place, particularly when all the fields have been burned. 
Murad retreated to the Zlatitsa Pass, knowing that his outnumbered army could challenge the Crusaders better there as they made their way towards the Ottoman capital of Edirne. Now, by the time they met the Crusaders, it was mid-December and bitterly cold. The Crusaders really could have turned away. They could have gone to find a place to wait out the winter. But at this moment, they decided to press on. And the result was total defeat. While we don't have detailed descriptions, the Crusaders were repulsed and turned back to return to Hungary on Christmas Eve of 1443. So after all those defeats, the Ottomans turned the Crusaders back. But of course, the way back was through those very fields that had been laid waste by the Ottomans. And again, it was the middle of winter. So no doubt the Crusaders lost many soldiers due to lack of provisions and that bitter, bitter cold. However, on the way back, the Crusaders were ambushed by the Ottomans near Niche and actually managed to defeat the ambushing force, which is quite remarkable. I mean, you imagine how how bad morale must have been at this moment. They lost, it's freezing, they don't have any food, they're retreating, and yet they defeat this ambushing force. And they even manage to capture the Sultan's son-in-law in the process. So what this did was it actually allowed the Crusaders to portray the whole endeavor as a victory when they got back home. Whereas otherwise it would have been, okay, yeah, we won a couple times and we lost. Now, hey, you know, we made a strategic retreat and we defeated the ambushing attacking Ottomans. So really it was all good and uh, it was a great success. But the question was still whether they would manage to return home. Home was still quite a ways away and the Ottomans could still attack. Now, George Brankovic proposed that the entire army spend the winter in Serbia so they could be ready right there to resume the campaign in the spring. However, Vlasislav and Honyadi rejected the proposal and returned to Buda. There, they were treated like conquering heroes in spite of the mixed record of the campaign. Still, the fact that word went out all over Europe that a great victory had been won was important. It had been hard to convince European leaders to send armies and commanders to fight the Ottomans when precious crusades against them had ended so disastrously in the past. So, even if it was mostly propaganda, this was really important for the Crusaders and for the sort of European forces fighting the Ottomans. Now that spring, instead of returning to the field to campaign against the Ottomans again, emissaries from the Crusading states went to the Ottoman capital, the Dirne, to negotiate a peace. Fortunately for them, while they had been fighting the Ottomans the previous two years, those Karamanids in southeastern Anatolia the ones who have been fighting recently, well, they sacked two cities, including Ankara. And so Murad was faced with the same problem the Byzantines had always faced, that constant danger of two front wars. Remember, the Hungarians had scored all those recent victories while Murad was either in Anatolia or on his way back. So things would go quiet in Anatolia, only to have the situation flare up in the Balkans back again, or vice versa. So Murad had to rush back and forth between them. For this reason, he was really eager to make peace with the Crusaders. He also, justifiably, felt that his forces had performed really poorly, and so he wasn't eager to continue fighting and see how much worse things could get. He clearly had a bit of reforming to do in the army, or at least, you know, train everyone a bit better if they were going to perform better. And so, yeah, he wanted this crusade over with. And in June 1444, 
a treaty was signed. Firstly, it once again brought Serbia back to life. Serbia seems to be the sort of cat of the Middle Ages in the Balkans. It just keeps coming back. This newly restored Serbia would be under the control of Brankovic and would contain 24 cities, including that capital he worked so hard to build at Smederovo. He would also have his sons return to him, although they had both been blinded by the Ottomans, so sorry. But the catch was that this new Serbia would still be an Ottoman vassal state. So, well, you win some, you lose some. Lastly, the agreement contained a 10-year truce between Hungary and the Ottomans, and would allow Vlad Dracul to avoid the obligation to go to Murad's court. Still, the tribute from the Wallachians would have to keep going because they were still considered an Ottoman vassal. However, even as Murad was rushing through the completion of this treaty with the Christian emissaries, he really had to get over to Anatolia to fix the situation there. While often hungry, King Vlasislav was actually preparing to continue the crusade. Well, more on that in a second. Because in the meantime, we have to jump over to that Albanian lord, Skanderbeg, who I told you would be so important. Now, he had just escaped from Ottoman service during the early battles, and, well, he went to Albania, and he formed something called the League of Lege, an anti-Ottoman alliance of Albanian feudal lords led by him personally. Catching wind of this while peace talks were ongoing with the Crusaders, an Ottoman army marched to Albania because, well, they wanted none of this. They had to nip this in the bud, eliminate this potential uprising right away. So, obviously, Sultan Murad is very busy elsewhere, and so he sends his premier commander, Ali Pasha, who has somewhere between 25 and 40,000 troops, and their mission is to crush the Albanians. Skanderbeg, well, he had about 15,000 soldiers, so even if you take the low estimate of the Ottomans, they're still pretty heavily outnumbered. But the difference is, that those Albanians, they are rested, they are motivated, they know the terrain. As the famous 18th century historian Edward Gibbon put it, quote, Albanians, a martial race, were unanimous to live and die with their hereditary prince, end quote. So, obviously, they had quite an attachment to Skanderbeg, and he led them to the plain of Torviol, an open plain with some rough terrain and forests on both sides, and there he planned an ambush for the Ottomans, laying a portion of his soldiers hidden in one of those forests on the flank. So as the armies met, the Albanians were set up to provoke an Ottoman cavalry charge, arrayed in a reverse crescent, a classic move of ancient and few medieval armies that sort of you know pushes their center back so it looks very inviting. It looks like their center is thin. It looks like it's weak. This made the trap as alluring as possible, and the Ottomans took the bait. They sent an initial cavalry charge, which was repulsed, no doubt with great difficulty. Many Albanians wished to pursue the fleeing cavalrymen, but Skanderbeg held them back, wishing to maintain order so his trap could be set, and suspicious of a feigned retreat on the Ottomans' part. Remember, this is the classic tactic of steppe peoples, to pretend they're retreating and then attack once they're pursued. Eventually, the entire Ottoman army engaged in the trap was sprung, 
Albanian horsemen rushed from the forests to hit the Ottomans in the rear. The Ottomans began to fall apart as the Albanians moved in and slaughtered them. They took huge casualties and Ali Pasha barely escaped with his life. This was the beginning of Skanderbeg's war against the Ottomans, which was to last for decades. Though consistently outnumbered, Skanderbeg's Albanian forces would win battle after battle over the next few years. But in the meantime, word of that great victory further encouraged the Crusaders to abandon those peace talks that were kind of ongoing. They signed a treaty, but the treaty wasn't final. The Crusaders are still really debating whether they should restart the whole thing. But this word of Skanderbeg's victory said, do it. The Ottomans can be beat. So, at that moment, there were really intense pro and anti-war factions. They were all putting their pressures on the king, and in particular, Brankovic, being the one set to gain the most from this new Ottoman treaty, was attempting to organize in favor of peace. Ultimately, by the time the Ottoman ambassadors arrived in the Hungarian city of Szeged, Vladislav was trying to buy time. In 10 days, the final version of what would become the peace of Szeged was negotiated. It was essentially what had been agreed to in Edirne, with an initial additional 100,000 gold florins paid by the Ottomans to the Hungarians. Not too bad. However, even as the ink was drying and Brankovic was taking possession of his lands, plans to restart the crusade were progressing. Janos Hunyadi, having been one of the main people who signed the treaty, was coaxed into breaking his oath by being offered the kingship of Bulgaria. Now, remember, even before the destruction of the Second Bulgarian Empire, kings of Hungary had just sort of decided to take the title king of Bulgaria, even though that never really meant very much uh, on their part. But still, let's say, you know, you can be technically a king of a place that is not a country right now. Fortunately for Hunyadi, the king also said, uh, it's also important that um, you're not going to be dishonored by breaking your oath because uh, the Ottomans are terrible and they're liars and we can break oaths with them. No big deal. So it was now getting into late summer and it was agreed that the crusade would resume in the fall. The war party won out. But as preparations were underway, Murad still had no idea this was going on. He did not know that he was going to be betrayed and that the treaty was, well, just a piece of paper. He had just finished his war with the Karamanids in Anatolia, and really he was under the impression that peace in Anatolia and peace in the Balkans meant that, well, the Ottoman Empire was entering a period of peace. And so with this in mind, Murad took a remarkable step. He abdicated in favor of his 12-year-old son, Mehmed II, the first time an Ottoman sultan had done something like this. But clearly, Murad was dreaming of a peaceful retirement and thinking that this 10-year peace with the Hungarians would give his son ample time to grow up without being faced with the tribulations of war. Ah, but Murad was very, very wrong. On September 20th, only about a month after Murad's abdication, that crusader army began its march south. This time, instead of heading through Serbia, the army followed the Danube. Now, this was because Brankovic, again, he did not agree with breaking the peace of Szeged, and so he refused to participate and risk Serbia's newly gained independence, which was so dear to him. So the plan was to make for the Black Sea, 
and then head south to again attack the Ottoman capital of Edirne. The Venetians were blocking the Dardanelles to prevent the main Ottoman army from being transported from Anatolia back to Europe. However, the Genoese were working with the Ottomans, and they managed to transport the army in spite of the Venetians' best efforts to prevent it. The Crusaders reached important cities like Nicopol, Vidin, and Ternovo along the way, though they didn't take any of these powerful fortresses because, well, time was of the essence. Still, we can imagine that Frujin, the son of Tsar Ivan Shishman, who was with the army all the way, with a contingent of Bulgarian warriors, well, imagine how he must have felt to see the former capital again. Really a side note, there's nothing in the sources about this, but we can simply imagine the emotions. But there was nothing to do about it now. The army had to march on, and they reached Varna in November, with the intention of linking up with the Venetian fleet and some papal reinforcements. But there, they learned that the Venetian blockade had failed when they encountered 40 to 50,000 Ottoman soldiers, an army twice their size. The Crusader army was made of Hungarians, Czechs, Poles, Bohemians, Papal Knights, Teutonic Knights, Bosnians, Croatians, Lithuanians, Ruthenians, and yes, Bulgarians. In addition, about a third of the army were Wallachians, who had just joined the army at Nicopolis. But for all their international support, the force was only perhaps 20,000 strong. Now, the disparity of forces was a good enough reason to retreat right away. However, the Ottomans had swung around and approached Varna from the north, and so the Crusaders were stuck between the Black Sea, Lake Varna, and the Ottomans. So, the question was whether to focus on defense or to attack. The Hungarian commander Hunyadi declared, quote, To escape is impossible. To surrender is unthinkable. Let us fight with bravery and honor our arms, end quote. Now, you can see a map of all this on the website as usual, and you can get an idea of the situation. Now, the Crusaders set themselves up at about a three and a half kilometer long arc with the lake and the sea covering each of their flanks. The battle began with the light cavalry of the Ottomans attacking the, the Ottoman left flank, rather, attacking the Christian right flank. The attack was repulsed with missile fire, and the Christians pursued the Ottomans before being slammed on their flank by more Ottoman cavalry. Another example of the Ottomans retreating, drawing the Christians in, and then attacking them. This led to a retreat of the Crusader right, which attempted to get through the marshes and the small river between Lake Varna and the sea in order to retreat to a fortress for some protection. Meanwhile, the Ottoman right flank was also attacking, but it was repulsed. Still, the Ottomans attacked again, and Hunyadi left the center to go assist them. With him gone, the Polish king Vlasislav decided that he had the chance to end the battle this moment. He saw the Ottoman center was vulnerable, and so he gathered 500 Polish knights, and they rushed, they charged straight into the Ottoman center, with the intent to kill or capture Sultan, the Sultan. Now, they overran the Janissary infantry. They reached the Sultan's tent before Vlasislav's horse fell, and the king was killed and beheaded by an Ottoman mercenary. Hunyadi tried desperately to retrieve the body of the king, the man who ruled most of Central Eastern Europe, and who was that great hope of Christendom against the Ottomans, 
but it was no use. The rest of the army retreated and was slaughtered or captured as they tried to make their way through the marshes to the rear. Those who did get away largely died of frostbite or were hunted down by the Ottomans. Another crusader army was gone. Even the Venetian ships in the Black Sea weren't able to rescue nearly anyone. Only Hunyadi seems to have escaped the Ottomans, though he was then imprisoned by the Wallachians for some reason. Still, eventually, Vlad Durkul did let him go. Now, while the Ottomans did take heavy casualties, uh, it's said that it actually took the Sultan three days to realize he had actually won the battle, though that seems a bit strange to me. Uh, victory seems pretty clear. This victory, once again for the Ottomans, eliminated the possibility of any major opposition to their expansion in Europe for the foreseeable future, and it made it even more unlikely that the rest of Europe would reunite under the banner of the Crusades to resist the Ottomans. Remember I mentioned how important the propaganda was here, that if Europe believed that the Ottomans were invincible, if they believed that sending their great knights and their money and their soldiers off away would only mean they would die in strange lands, then no one's going to do it. And so that's how it worked out. Now, a quick note about those who led the Ottomans at the Battle of Varna. I mentioned the Sultan. Now, some sources write that it was Murad, while others say he was still in retirement until 1446, when the Janissaries led an uprising and demanded his return. I honestly, looking at the sources, can't be quite sure. But either way, at some point, and I'm going to talk about it in more detail soon, Murad does come back, uh, come out of retirement, sort of. Um, but there is an interesting quote attributed to the young Mehmed II to his father, stating simply, quote, if you are the Sultan, come lead your armies. If I am the Sultan, I hereby order you to come lead my armies." End quote. Really, you can't argue with the kid's logic there. But either way, either if it was now or in two years, Murad was back on the throne, his young son returning to the role as the heir apparent. Meanwhile, the death of the king of Hungary and Poland led to immediate chaos as various nobles jockeyed for power in Hungary fell into a kind of civil war. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III occupied many castles and territories on Hungarians' western areas, and other neighbors and local lords, well, they just stole what they could. After some time, a diet was called, and it was decided that the five-year-old Lassislas the Posthumous, son of Albert V, the previous Hungarian king, would be released from imprisonment by Frederick the Holy Roman Emperor and would become king of Hungary. In addition, all the castles that had been illegally constructed during all this chaos would have to be torn down. However, Frederick refused to release Lassislaus. So in 1446, Hunyadi, who had then been released by the Wallachians, uh, was elected regent to run the, com the country in the meantime. That June, a truce was signed with the Holy Roman Empire, which essentially just accepted that, well, they weren't going to release the young Hungarian king, uh, and later on, they kind of amended it to say that they would release him on his 18th birthday so he could go become king. So in the meantime, well, Hunyadi simply ruled Hungary. Now, the last thing I want to briefly discuss before wrapping up. You'll notice that someone was entirely absent from this crusade of Varna. The Byzantines. 
Now this absence demonstrates just how much their relevance had declined, and that they were neither willing or really able to assist against the Ottomans. They stayed quiet in Constantinople this entire time. Of course, one of the other important results of the battle is that, well, along with Ottoman victories in Anatolia and the Balkans, the Ottomans now felt free to focus their attention on that single last bit of territory between all this land of theirs, Constantinople. But, again, just remember this, the Byzantines, they've really given up on rising up alongside crusaders to challenge the Ottomans. They don't think it's worth it. They don't think they can resist. They're just focusing on keeping Constantinople on, protecting their jewel of a city. And so, as the Ottomans start to turn around and focus there, well, we'll see what happens next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And, as always, Uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>